0: Well, I'm going to ask you if you'll open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, I'd like to read all the way through verse 21 and spend some time talking with you this morning about the walk of the wise, the walk of the wise. You know, we need the Word of God today. We need it today like we need it every single day There's nothing more important than being fed by God's word congregationally, corporately, and and also individually. So as we turn our attention to the Bible this morning, we're turning our attention to the very word of God. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Growing up in Florida, you might not be familiar with this term like I am, but if you if you grew up in the South, you you know what stickers are. Stickers are the most vile and uh, and horrific result of the Garden of Eden and the fall that took place in the Garden of Eden for a barefooted boy in Florida. Uh, stickers are these little pointed, sharp things that protrude deeply into your skin as you're playing kickball in the backyard or football in the front yard. They're they're despicable, they're disgusting, and once they get lodged in, it is as painful to pull them out as it was for them to to be pressed in. And so it doesn't take many times of running through a, a sticker patch that you begin to be very careful and very observant when you're outside. You want to make sure that if you're playing in the backyard, all the stickers have been, uh, have been pulled up. And, and there's not going to be any kind of incident that, uh, that could lead to a bit of embarrassing crying. Well, Paul tells us in verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk. Uh, I would go out in the backyard as a boy, and man, I would, I would scour, and I would look, and I would be so cautious to make sure that, that where we were going to play ball, because in Florida, whether it's in uh, December or it's in June, you go barefooted. And so you're going to make sure that if you're going to play ball in the backyard, you're not going to come into contact with any stickers, so you're very, very careful. Uh, Paul, in this opening, opening line, says to us, Therefore, be careful how you walk. The word walk carries the idea of how you live your life. It communicates the thought that we're headed in a direction, that you don't just stay, stand still in life. Either you're moving forward or you're moving back. A lot of times you'll hear, you'll hear people say, you know, my marriage is stagnant. Well, it's not really that, uh, that your marriage is stagnant. Your marriage is probably decreasing. It's probably going backward. And sometimes the movement forward is kind of slow, uh, but that's the way that life is lived. When you walk, you walk forward. Very few people walk like this. It's kind of odd. when you see that. Occasionally we've seen people in our neighborhood, and I don't know what exactly they're training for, but they're, they're walking backward. And I'll usually say to Jay Lynn, "Come look at this," And she say, "Is it the guy walking backward?" I've already seen it. And, and I said, it's still amazing to me. Nobody walks that way. And I don't know if he's planning on going blind or what it is. He just wants to see how he's going to do. But when we walk, we move forward. We make headway. It's a, it's an old Hebrew way of saying, when you walk, you're living life. You're heading in a particular direction. And what he says in this first Verse, therefore be careful how you walk. He's saying, be careful how you live. Uh, Just like a six-year-old boy playing football in the backyard in central Florida is careful to avoid a patch of stickers. We've got to be very careful in the way that we live life as we move day to day. You say, Pastor, what does he mean? Well, he means we live in a fallen world. In just a couple of weeks, we're going to look at some rather disturbing verses. They tell us that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and, and forces of darkness. There is a world that exists that is every bit as real as our physical world, only it's a spiritual world. It's a world of spiritual reality. It's a, world of, it's a world of divine existence. It's where God lives. It's where angels and demons exist. And when Paul says, be careful how you walk, he's communicating, we live in a fallen world. We live in a dangerous world. Not just a dangerous world for crime and war and poverty, but we live in a dangerous world spiritually. And so he says be very very careful how you walk because there's only two ways to live life. One is to live life like a fool and the other is to live life like a wise person. Notice he says in verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk not as unwise men but as wise. There There's two roads, Jesus says. There's the broad road. And you enter the broad road through a broad gate. And when you walk through the broad gate and you walk along the broad road, there's a lot of company. There's a lot of people. It's a a crowded and congested journey. And, And it ends at a particular destination. But he says there's also a narrow gate and a narrow road and those who enter the narrow gate are much fewer in number and those who walk the narrow pathway with us are are relatively few in number when you when you look at the at the in comparison to the entire world and the same is true in verse 15 there are those who are wise they've entered the narrow gate they're walking the narrow road they know that along the way that there are traps and there are enticements to try and lure them off of the narrow road Uh, they're 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 pretty they're alluring they're provocative and satan knows just to deviate us ever so slightly over the course of time you get further and further and further away from where you were headed And so, even on that narrow road, you've got to be wise and discerning and cautious. Uh, But most people, they enter the wide gate and walk along the the broad road. Uh, They dominate culture, the political arena. Uh, They they try to communicate to us that we're backward, we're narrow-minded, we're fundamentalistic. And the entire, the entire time, they're headed toward a terrible, terrible ending. And so he says, you've got to be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Well, how do wise people walk? Well, wise people make the best use of their time. That's the first thing that he says. Wise people make the best use of their time. Look in verse 16. Making the most of your time. Uh, being, being careful that you use your days wisely. Uh, I figured up this morning, I'm I'm almost uh, 60, not quite there yet, but I'll be 60 this year. And so I, I thought, well, what if I what if I live to to 80? Well, I have twenty nine thousand. Two hundred days. No, really, I've got 7,665 days. It's even better, I guess. 7,665 days. I need to be wise in how I use those days. I need to be circumspect that I that I use the life that I have left wisely. Uh, some of you will, will leave here and you'll go to the to the preschool and you and you'll pick up a, a precious newborn baby uh, god's entrusted that that child into your care for approximately 18 years let's say let's say 18 years and then they they go off to college well you have them for 6570 days if i live to 80 i've got more days left than you have days to invest in your children between infancy or birth and and 18 years of age. Those are very, very important days. And there's good and there's bad. The good news is when you blow it one day, you've got about 7,000 other days to to do better. That's, That's the good news. The bad news is life is like a treadmill, and once you get on that treadmill, one day becomes another day, becomes another day, and then all of a sudden your children are 10. And you wonder... Have I been investing in my children enough? And then they're 12 and they're 14. Uh, The treadmill of life is both a curse and a blessing. The blessing is none of us are going to get it right every day and some of us are going to get it wrong seven days in a row. The curse is it's easy for life to pass us by. The most important things in life so he says make the most of your time why why must we be very careful to use our days wisely and invest in the most important things and in the most important relationships he says because the days are evil Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4 that that Christ has delivered us from an evil age. Ancient Judaism thought of two ages. There was this age, which was evil, and the God of this age is the devil, and he has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, and the age to come was the age of the Messiah. But what we find is that when Jesus came, the age to come overlaps with this present evil age. That it's the blessings of eternity we are experiencing to a small degree right now with the giving of the Holy Spirit, with the camaraderie and the fellowship that we enjoy here in this church, With with the congregational gathering and the singing that will only be multiplied in an enormous way in heaven. We're experiencing a little bit of the age to come right now. There's an overlap. But we still live in a present evil age. And so Paul says, you need to make the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil. Wise people use their time wisely. They invest in in things that are going to give them a good return, like their children, like their marriage, like their church, uh, the kinds of things that, that will really make a significant difference. A lot of times I, I talk to people and, and they'll say something like, well, you know, my husband never kisses me anymore. I said, go kiss him. He'll say, my wife doesn't sit next to me on the, on the couch when we watch a television program anymore. Get up and go over and sit next to her. That is, we're grown up people, we're big people, we've got to invest in the things that really matter, in the relationships that really count, in the things that are going to make an eternal. Difference. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't put our, our feet up on the, on the porch and, and, uh, and a, on a nice, beautiful evening and, and, drink, uh, and drink a cup of tea or, or go on long walks or, or just spend an evening playing video games with our kids. All of those, that doesn't mean any of that. It just means, in general, we're making a wise use of our life. And the things that are most important get the best of our time. So wise people use their time wisely. The second thing that he says is this. Wise people discern God's will. Wise people discern God's will. Look with me in verse 17. So then, so then if you're going to use your life wisely, if you're going to walk wisely, circumspectly, you're going to make the best use of your time, so then don't be a fool. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand God's will because decisions have to be made about how you use your time. And you have to evaluate the way that the Bible instructs us about giving ourselves to the things that matter most. If we're married to our spouse and our children and our church, if we're single to the relationships that we build the camaraderie that we have with other single people, preparing ourselves that if God does lead us into marriage, that we're prepared to actually be a mature husband and wife, and then investing in the church and the relationships of the church. So he says, so then don't be a fool. Understand what the will of the Lord is. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about, how do I know God's will? Most of God's will is made perfectly known in the Bible. What's God's will for my marriage? If you're a man, God's will for your marriage is that you lay down your life for your wife and not for your career. If you're a wife, God's will for you is that you love and honor and respect your husband and show him the deference that is due him under the lordship of of Jesus Christ this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality it is never appropriate under any circumstance to treat and touch someone that you're not married to as if that you were married to them that is always absolutely outside the will of God this is the will of God your sanctification that is you abstain from sexual immorality. That's not my little nomenclature. That comes straight from the Apostle Paul in First Thessalonians chapter, uh, chapter 4. But you notice the, the language he uses, but understand, it, it, it takes some initiative because not everything in the Bible addresses every circumstance and situation in life. We, we glean principles from the Bible. A lot of people, uh, and, and, and myself included, sometimes... I don't start seeking the will of God until it's like a major decision. That's that's not the best way to, to seek God's will. The best way is to seek God every day, day in and day out. And as you seek God, he begins to instill within us principles and concepts and truth. So that when we have to make decisions between the good and the best... The Bible isn't going to lay that out for us. But we've been preparing for it. As we've studied the truth of God's word and he's molded us and crafted us into his image. And we know the principles and the the guiding truths for making important life decisions. And so he says, wise people discern God's will. Foolish people discern. Do not. The third thing that he says is this, wise people are spirit-filled. Wise people are spirit-filled. Look with me in verse 18. He makes the, the most unusual comparison and contrast. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What an odd comparison and contrast to make. Don't get drunk with wine, but be spirit-filled. Don't be filled with, with wine, be filled with, with the spirit. You know, there's a sense in which a drunk person and a spirit-filled person are alike. You might find that stunning, but, it, but it's true. Having been, been raised in a home where my, where my dad uh, struggled with alcoholism his uh his entire adult life and and um and my life as his uh, as his uh, child growing up my mom would often say to me she would say honey you you know that's not your dad that's not your dad talking that's that's the the liquor talking my dad was Generally, a very kind man, very loving, very, uh, very supportive of my brother and I. I. I just know almost every night going to bed as a child, my dad kissing me on the on the forehead. He uh, was very, very loving. But when my dad would, would drink, my dad would not act himself. And nobody acts himself when they when they drink. It immediately affects first and foremost the decision making mechanism of the brain. And so, how is drunkenness like being spirit-filled? Because when we're spirit-filled, we behave in ways we don't normally behave. We speak, in, we speak to people in ways that we wouldn't naturally speak to them. Uh, we make the choices in life that matter most. Uh, we walk circumspectly. We're very careful with our with our walk. We we act, we behave in ways that we just don't normally naturally behave. Normally and naturally, I'm a worrywart. Naturally and normally, I can be a little bit bit sharp and critical and, and negative. But by the grace of God, when I'm filled with the spirit of God, I have more faith. I'm more considerate. I'm more kind. I'm more caring, I'm more forbearing. I, I don't accentuate the weaknesses and the faults and the, and the, and the missteps of others. When I'm spirit-filled, I'm, I'm more like Jesus and less, less like myself. And, and that way, a person who's drunk and a person that's spirit-filled are very much alike. They're, they're under the influence of something or someone. And it's evident in the way they speak and the way that they behave. And so he says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And in every other way, drunkenness and the fullness of the Spirit are completely and totally and absolutely opposite of, of one another. But what Paul goes on to do in the next several verses is he begins to describe for us what the Spirit-filled life looks like. So he says, be filled with the spirit. That's a command. All of us who know Jesus are indwelt by the spirit of God. At the moment of salvation, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. We become a part of the body of Christ. We are indwelt by God's spirit. And there's absolutely nothing we will ever do that will cause the spirit of God to leave us. When the spirit of God indwells us, we are justified. We are counted righteous, forgiven of all our sins, we have an absolute assurance of eternal life. We don't do anything to be saved. We can't do anything to unsave ourselves. We're saved by the grace of God. We're kept by the grace of God. The grace of God will never fail us. So we're indwelt by God's spirit at the moment of of salvation. But not every believer is filled with God's spirit all the time. You can go through the book of Acts and you'll see over and over again after the day of Pentecost, there were episodes and incidents and and particular circumstances where where Paul and Barnabas and, and the other disciples and ordinary people were filled with the Spirit of God. And so Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And then he describes what it looks like. The interesting thing is he describes what it looks like by depicting the spirit-filled life in relationship to others. How we relate to one another and how we relate to God. It's not speaking in an unknown tongue. It's not dancing around a room in some frantic uncontrolled fashion. Spirit's fullness is evidenced by how we speak to one another how we speak about one another and how we interact with God notice what he says circle the word in verse 19 speaking speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs now he's not saying that we go around singing to one another good morning Dr. Elof yeah that's Uh, his stomach would immediately begin to turn and and he would say, I hope you don't think you're spirit-filled because this sure doesn't sound like it. Now, we're speaking and we're encouraging, we're edifying, we're building people up. We're not tearing them down. We're exhortive. That's the idea. Our speech is saturated with truth. Our speech is saturated with scripture. Notice he says, speaking to one another. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual th- songs. Circle the word singing. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Notice speaking to one another, singing to the Lord. Singing to the Lord. That idea of singing with your heart really carries the thought of singing from your heart. Singing heartfelt songs to Jesus. Singing loudly and boldly and confidently, just like we did a few minutes ago, about all that Jesus means to us, all that he's accomplished for us. Christian people are singing people. They have more to sing about than anybody else. We ought to sing whether we like the songs or we don't like the songs, as long as they're filled with truth. Whether we like the tune or we don't like the tune, we ought to sing to Jesus because the songs that we sing ought to be saturated with truth and express verbally what we feel about him inwardly. Spirit-filled people are singing people. Sometimes people will say to me, well, I don't like to sing. Then I would say, you need to be spirit-filled. Some people say, I don't like the songs. I would say, you need to be spirit-filled. What you need is a Fresh fullness of the Spirit. That's what sets apart one worshiper from another. Why is it that one is engaged and involved and expressive in, in an appropriate way? Not necessarily the raising of the hands like I sometimes do. You don't have to raise your hands to express the Spirit's fullness. But your lips have to move and there have to come words out of your lips. And when the Spirit fills us, we become a singing people. And notice the third characteristic, giving thanks. Giving thanks. Notice we speak to one another. We worship the Savior. We give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God Even the Father. So the third one also has to do with speaking. We speak to one another, we sing to God, and we give thanks to God for all the good things that He does for us. Sometimes sometimes we can misunderstand this phrase, always giving thanks for all things. Well, we give thanks to God for the things that are worthy of God, not for the things that are bad or sinful or demean the glory of God. We don't say, God, thank you that in our city, sex trafficking is a prominent trade. Praise God, thank you for all things. That's ridiculous. It's preposterous that we would say, thank you to God that children are snatched off the streets in other countries, brought to this city, and then sold into the sex trade industry. We don't give thanks to God for that. We pray to God about that. But everything that is worthy of God, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And so what we begin to do is we realize every good thing I experience is a blessing from God. And so throughout the day, we ought to be saying a a hundred times, God, thank you. Thank you for that cold, clean water when there are so many people in this world that drink contaminated filthy water we, t- we take it for granted but it's a blessing from God and we realize that the good things that are done to us gifts that come to us from people whether it's a a, a pat on the back or a hug or I've received uh, Jalen's been here and, and there uh, going to help, help her mom. She's leaving in just a few minutes to go back uh, to be with her mom. And uh, I got several gift cards from McDonald's from you guys. Oh, man, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Magnificent. Jalen said, on the way, uh, last night before bed, please, if you're going to go out to eat, eat something healthy. I'm going straight for a Big Mac right after. It's got lettuce, it's got protein, the bread is toasted, it's a, it's, thank you, and that thanksgiving goes to God. And so, how can she deny me that? How could she deny me that? But nevertheless, we realize that when, when people bless us, that's God blessing us. It's God caring for us, it's God letting us know, I know where you live, I know how to get in touch with you. We come into, we go into our BFG and it's been a very difficult week. And a brother or sister says to us, listen, I, I want you to know, I don't know what's going on. I prayed for you this week. I, ho- I hope things are all right. And that's God saying to you, I know where you are. I know what you were going through. So I went all the way across town to this sister who was reading her Bible just before the children got up. And I brought you to her mind. And she said, the briefest of prayer, which engaged me to strengthen to strengthen you. Giving thanks to God for all things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. And then finally, circle the two words, be subject. Be subject to one another. Speak to one another in kindly and encouragingly. Speak about one another kindly and encouragingly. Speak to God, worship in thanksgiving, and be subject to one another. Notice, underline the phrase one another in verse 19, underline the phrase one another in verse 21. See, we like to spiritualize the fullness of the Spirit rather than actualize it. It is lived out in the real world of people. Spirit-filled living is not some esoteric, ethereal existence where I kind of float on a plane above other people. No, I'm engaging other people. I'm ministering to other people. I'm encouraging, I'm exhorting, and I'm submitting to others in the fear of Christ. Say, Pastor, what does he mean by be subject to one another? It means you don't have to have your way about everything, and neither do I. To be subject to one another out of the fear of Christ is to have a, have a teachable spirit, a submissive spirit, a, a willing spirit that's willing to, to put the, the needs of others before my own needs. It's recognizing that, that God wants me to be humble and teachable and kind and caring and, and willing to forbear with other people. We're so unforbearing. Saying, you know, I don't like it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I'm willing to submit to it, out of the fear of Christ, out of the out of the out of the out of the love, my love for Christ. I'm I'm willing to do that. It's not immoral. It's not illegal. It's not it's not detrimental to my spiritual well-being or health. Or, it's not going to hurt my relationship with my with my spouse in the home. I'm going to submit to my wife in this particular area. I'm gonna I'm going to allow her. Uh, yesterday, Jalen said they're going to put up these blinds. They've been downstairs for a year. I said, "I kind of like the blinds we've got." This is a real conversation. I kind of like the blinds we've got. She says something like, "You hate change, even the changing of the blinds." And uh, I said, "Well, you know, I, I guess I do." And she says they're faded." I said, "I know they are. The night light, the lights from the from out front that we leave on, they shine right through them, and they keep us awake at night. I guess they do these uh, has got a darkening shade i'll do all the work which that went without saying she doesn't trust me you not trust me with a drill as far as she could throw the drill and so she said "If you just stand behind me so that i don't fall off the ladder you know what why why do we put up a fuss about things that don't matter so I submit to my wife's desires, to her, to her preference in, 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 uh, in this matter. And, man, it was nice and dark in our room last night. Phenomenally, <laughs> phenomenally good. I, I'm glad that I, I let her do it. And so, you know, submit to one another out of the fear of Christ. And the question is, how can I be filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, it's not like one, two, three, you got it. There's no formula. God will not be manipulated, coerced by some kind of routine or human strategy. Uh, Let me give you just a couple of things that I think cause us to be candidates for the Spirit's fullness. Now, we're indwelt by the Spirit of God. I've already said that. We, we saw in chapter 4, Paul said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will not fill us if he is grieving in us. He will not fill us if he's grieving in us. Do battle with indwelling sin that grieves the Spirit of God. Do battle with it. Hate it like he hates it. Go to war with it. Now, you, don't, you, you may not, he's not saying that you've got to conquer it, but you've got to recognize it, confess it, and go to war with it. The second thing I think that, that you've got to be, be willing to do is to ask for it, to ask for it. We have not because we ask not. Have you noticed in our prayers that we prayed for our church this week? You know, on the back of the, of the roadmap, map, the, the, the prayers that we would be a spirit-filled congregation. There'd be a rising tide of the ministry of the spirit among us. We have not because we ask not. You don't like something about us, pray for us. We have not because we ask not. Third, do what spirit-filled people do. Do what spirit-filled people do. When you see a brother and sister, encourage them. When you think about talking about a brother and sister, speak well of them. When you, get to, when you gather for worship or in your private uh, time with the Lord, sing loudly, boldly, confidently. As you're going throughout the day, thank people when they do nice things for you. But after you thank them in your heart, say, God, thank you that you blessed me through this, through this brother or sister. And then, and then finally, don't be so pig headed. Don't be so hard-headed. Submit to one another out of the fear, out of the fear of Christ. You know your wife likes you to sit next to her? By golly, sit next to her. Submit yourself out of fear of Christ. Minister to one another. You know your roommate's a pig? Clean up after him. Then say a word of confrontation to him, you know. <laughs> say, "Listen, you slob, I'm gonna throw you out on you." No, you, you see what I mean? I think, though. Well, we're gonna come to a time of a time of commitment in just a moment. We'll stand. It may be that uh, as you're here today, you'd like to talk to someone about your spiritual life. If you'll come down, we'll we'll introduce you to somebody that can that can talk with you. Maybe you've decided, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna." We're going to join the church. We, we need some guidance on the steps for membership. You come down and we'll introduce you to someone that can, uh, that can do that. So we're going to, Craig's going to lead us. We're going to sing. We're going to stand. Maybe you'll just uh, reflect on what we've talked about during one of the stanzas and, and uh, allow the Spirit of God to, to speak to you. Then, then start singing loudly and boldly uh, again. A couple of announcements and we're going to be through this morning. Would you stand and I'll lead us in a word of prayer. Father, all of us are so needy. We need you more than we recognize that we need you. I pray in Jesus' name that your spirit would work in your people for your glory and for our good. And I pray, Father, in Jesus' name that there would be a rising tide of the work of the spirit among us, resulting in repentance and faith and an authentic and genuine moving of your spirit for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.